Just in and so good. Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag & Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands, great prices. That's why you rack. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Oh, shit. Um, do you feel ready? Mm-hmm. Do you feel relaxed? Do you I feel do. like you've brushed away the debris of your morning? I do, actually. Okay, I feel good. really good. Like, sitting in here and talking with you, uh-huh. I feel really good. Hi, I'm Brittany, and Eric is on family leave, so there is no Eric, <laughs> but we are still for colored nerds. Welcome. So this is this is actually kind of weird to to be in the studio and not be like looking at Eric, but I am looking at a very cool, very lovely woman mm. who is going to be the first in our series of guests for the next few weeks who are going to be sort of like keeping me company, keeping me sane, keeping me cool until Eric comes back. So uh, the person who I have sitting across from me today is self-described as a writer, editor, and speaker. And she has been published such beautiful places as The Guardian, BuzzFeed, and Elle. She also has this amazing column that I am absolutely obsessed with called Disrupting Domesticity, which is all about like the trials, tribulations, and the triumphs of first-time cohabitation. Please welcome to the studio, along with me, the beautiful, wonderful, talented, fantastic, dynamic, and very kind, Ashley C. Ford. You make me feel like a queen. <laughs> oh my god, that's good. That's how I want people to feel. And I know it's just me applauding, but I know that I know that the listeners are applauding too. Yeah, I well, hope so. Welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be here. I'm really, really excited about this. Excited <laughs> that you're excited because I've been like I'm going to sound like a fangirl, but I've been reading your work for so long that like it's like almost like this weird moment where I'm just like, oh. And now you're sitting here oh and you're in the God. studio. You're excited to be talking to me. I'm a, you know, I'm I'm definitely a little bit of a nerd or a lot of bit mm-hmm. of a nerd. And this podcast is great. Um, I met you at the WNYC Podcast Festival. Yeah. And immediately upon meeting you, it's like, yeah, I wanna I wanna know who that is. That's I wanna <laughs> I wanna <laughs> I wanna know what she's doing here and I wanna know what she's working on and I wanna be part of it. Well but you yeah. saw, well the thing just to give you guys, just to clue you in, when we met, it was at the, it was at, it was like a women's podcasting thing. Yeah, and I was standing near the lunch table where they had all the food <laughs> laid out. <laughs> the first time that Ashley saw me, I was just like kind of weirded out that every single sandwich on the table appeared to have mayonnaise <laughs> or cheese, and I was just like, I think I was I was making your a face. steak face. Yeah, it was so. <laughs> It, like, I call that the who made the potato salad face. Like, it is it is when you're just looking at food with the most skeptical look on your face. Just like, no. You know, and it's it's the, what makes it funny is that I feel like some people's expressive face, like, it's kind of like, you know, it's almost indetectable. Mm-hmm. Yours is blatant. Yo, it's hereditary. <laughs> I have two sisters, one older and one younger. And, like, you can... You can tell when any of us thinks that something is off because, like, my face, our faces just break. Yeah. Like, the yolk of an egg face just broken. And my whole immediate family, you can't take anybody anywhere. My, like, and, like, I at least will just make the face. I don't want to put my family on blast. But there right. are members of my family who shall remain nameless. But I yeah. think that people who've met us before will be able to do process of elimination and figure it out. Other people will just know who I'm talking about. Yeah. But there are people in my family, you can't even take them anywhere because, like, I will try not to say something, right. but I definitely have family members who will be like, I'm going to ask. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know you're thinking it, but I'm going to ask. But I'm going to ask. I'm going to keep it real. Uh, well, welcome, Ashley. I'm so glad that you're here. And so we're going to talk about today. Mm-hmm. 
Because we already talked a little bit about family. Mm-hmm. And we've already talked a little bit about you. Mm-hmm. We have mentioned the fact that you are a writer slash editor mm-hmm. slash speaker. What does the people say sometimes? Editrix? What is an editrix? I, it's like a fancy, I think it's like a weird made up mashup white people word that they use sometimes. <laughs> 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 and like the Devil Wears Prada or some shit like, like the Shopaholic series. Yeah. That sounds like I show up to my media job mm-hmm. in leather cutouts or something yeah. like that to call myself an editrix. Like a like a latex corset. Yes. And like a button down, like ready to edit. Actually that sounds really beautiful. I know, that's a cute job. I'm gonna see about that. Anybody who's hiring an editrix, Ashley's a freelancer, but like I'm also available, <laughs> so if anyone's considering that. Um, while I'm not a professional writer, I just think that I would look cute in a latex corset. But speaking of writing, you have always been intensely personal in your writing. And Eric and I, because Eric and I obviously worked on this episode together mm-hmm. yeah. before you got here, um, we were talking about you um, and how excited we were for you to be here. Um, one of the things that he, like how he put it, is that you are like kind of a memoirist in a way mm-hmm. in the way that you write. So that like, you know, obviously like we we're happy to have you on, but that that particular thing about you piqued our interest. Because honestly, like not just most people, but specifically black folks are private people mm-hmm. in general. Oh yeah. And, you know, what like, goes on in this house stays in this house. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot, you know, maybe a, a mainstream term is is like a we like to we shy away from oversharing. Mm-hmm. Don't air our dirty laundry. Mm-hmm. Um, but you seem to have like carved this this. Uh, what do people say niche or niche? I don't really care. But you have this <laughs> space that you that that you occupy where you are not like sort of the memoirs and the personal accounts that we're used to growing up with where like Eric and I were talking and it's funny because he's like you know growing up all I had was like Malcolm X Frederick Douglass and Roots and I was like well growing up all I had was like Maya Angelou like slave slave narratives and Roots (laughs) you know what I mean like the prevailing narrative has been in order for a black person to be able to have a platform to share their life story or share their personal narrative it has to be these just mind-bendingly Herculean like feats that they have to overcome. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, you'd write about those things. You, you mm-hmm. write about them in like, um, but they're on an everyday scale, the sort of everyday Herculean things that every, that people have to deal with. Mm-hmm. We want to sort of get into this moment that seems to be, I think maybe it's been a few years building, but it's definitely happening now, where the narratives of black folks sort of meet personal account sort of meet like the availability of technology yeah making it so that there are you know there you exist Mm -hmm. but also this show exists right and then also there's lots of you know men and women and people of color black people specifically who are just like us who have platforms to be able to talk about their everyday shit Mm -hmm. so yeah that's what we're going to kind of get into today and i can think of like you know very few better people uh (laughs) that i would you know who would be fit for this conversation than you Mm-hmm. So yeah, I w- I would like to start with a question for you. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you how did you start writing, and how did you develop your voice in this way? Well, I mean, I've been writing little stories and stuff like my entire life, mm-hmm. um, but I was <laughs> I was very uh, quickly told, you know, this is cute, but it won't make you any money, and so it was something that I just you know, did as a hobby. I was always trying to, I I feel like from a very young age, I always had very artistic inclinations, but I was also very aware of living in poverty and not wanting that to be my future Mm. and trying to figure out if I could make those two somehow come together some way. And the only thing I actually like truly loved was writing but I tried a lot of different other things, other things that probably wouldn't have made me much money either. But, you know, I just <laughs> but, I, you know, anything but writing, because writing was the thing that people were just like, that'll just guarantee your poverty, you know. But then I went to college. I started out as a um, fashion major. Long story short, um, college really convinced me in one way or another that I was I'm not the kind of person who can be um I'm not the kind of person who can be successful 
in a setting that I don't love. I, I just don't have that in me. Mm. Uh, so I eventually changed my major to writing, and then everything changed. Like, I was suddenly doing something that I loved and cared about. And I'm not saying that every day was successful or every assignment or every class, mm-hmm. but the rate of um, success versus failure mm. and the definitely the rate of enjoyment of my educational experience just skyrocketed. And I decided to, while I was there, take a class in nonfiction writing. It ended up just being this super magical experience where in taking that class um, with a professor named Jill Christman, I saw a form of writing that I had not previously read much of, Mm -hmm. but that spoke to me in ways that, like, I mean, just disrupted me. It disrupted everything inside of me, and it disrupted everything I thought I wanted to create. Can you think of specific things that you read that oh, yeah. come to mind? Joanne Beard's uh, Boys of My Youth. Mm-hmm. There was also a story, a short story. Oh, I wish I could remember the name of the writer, but I know I'm pretty sure it was called The Bath. And I remember this woman writing about lying in the bath and the steam rising up off of her body mm-hmm. like ghosts were being released into the air. And I had never, you know, like thought like there was just this moment where I was like, what? Like just like that thought um, in Joanne Beard's not in her um, book of essays. There's one called The Fourth State of Matter which was just, like, one of the most beautiful things I'd ever read in the way that, like, she strung the story of trauma and loss and grief and really, like you said, those everyday, you know, Herculean efforts, like, all of those things together. Um, It was a masterpiece. It still is a masterpiece. But, yeah, so I was reading things like that, and I was just overcome by this desire to write about my life. And before that, I'd always wanted to, you know, write certain stories from my life, but I just always knew, like, there's no way I could write about these as nonfiction. I have to write them as fiction. I have to fictionalize things. I have to, like, make something up. But then I'm in this nonfiction class that calls for me to write nonfiction, and I'm doing it thinking that this is just a class, Mm -hmm. and it's just my one chance to really write about you know, my experiences and my thoughts and my life and to try to write about them in ways that would resonate with me when I was younger. Because that's always been my thing with writing is that I grew up reading so much and feeling like so many of my experiences just were not covered in literature, mm. not being able to find them in fiction or not anything. Oh, same. Um, so I wanted to write like that and... You know, it basically came down to me sitting down with my professor looking at my end-of-the-year project and her going, this is not an essay, this is a book. And you really need to think about if that's a book you want to write. But it could be a really important book, and I think you'd be the best person to write it. How old were you when you heard this? I was... I want to say maybe 22, 21, 22. That's heavy shit for that age. Yeah. Well, I was in college for a a long time. I mean, same. It's fine. Because I hated hated all, you know, like everything I was doing for the most part. Like, or I would be really interested and then I'd be in the classes and I'd still be really interested. But there would be this gnawing thing going, yeah, but it's not right for you. Hmm. You could do it. You really could. You are so capable. But it's not what you want to do. You know, you talk about, like, writing nonfiction mm-hmm. and not just fictionalizing your thoughts and experiences, but actually mm-hmm. writing as yourself and presenting them as, like, this is Ashley's life. Yeah. How did you accept? Because that's something, like, when I was younger, I wanted to write, and it was something, like, I took it really seriously. Everyone in my life knew that I wanted to do it. Over time, I think I I, I, I sort of, like, always believed that I needed to fictionalize it, which is how I ended up getting a degree in film, because I was like, oh, I can, like take an experience of my own, sort of like put it in a blender, add images, and then no one will know that right. this is what I actually said. Right. They can just attribute attribute it to this other person speaking this my thoughts. Character. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. How did you uh, – and I also like – I spent a lot of time when I was younger on LiveJournal mm-hmm. and like on Tumblr. I still be on Tumblr. I'm still on Tumblr. I was still on Tumblr creeping. Yes. Um, but like I had – 
I, where I felt like that was an acceptable space for me to write about myself. But I, over time, got really out of the habit um, and sort of d- didn't believe that the thoughts that I had or the everyday life that I was living was anything that was worth recording in any serious way. Mm-hmm. Did you deal with that? And if you Absolutely. did, like, how did you, how do you, how did you get, how did you get around that? And like, what age did you get around that? Um, well, I would say, um, hmm. I would say telling, I would say that my, my default position as a person is to not share. Mm-hmm. My default position as a person is to observe and listen and talk enough and say the right things to make other people feel comfortable, mm-hmm. but not to really share myself. I am the kind of person that for most of my life, people would one day look at their relationship with me and go, you know everything about me and I don't know anything about you. Mm-hmm. I'm familiar. Or you help me with this and that and, you know, I'm always coming to you advice, but you never ask me for advice. And <laughs> I think I did that because, you know, I I grew up with a lot of shame surrounding different things, especially my voice and my experiences and talking about things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was I was very much in one way or another told for most of my childhood that no one really cares how you feel or what you think Mm -hmm. like those are irrelevant things Mm -hmm. and when you talk about them you either make people uncomfortable you bore people (laughs) or you just give them more reasons not to like you or want to be around you Mm -hmm. so it was safety you know for me it was a matter of like well i like you a lot like people would start to think i didn't like them because i didn't want to share myself with them and it was like no i like you a lot that's why i don't share myself with you mm. it's because i want you to keep liking me um and eventually what ended up happening was just coming across some literature and you know certain like tv shows and stuff like all at the same time that were saying the same thing which is that you know being silent about what hurts you and about what you feel doesn't fix it, but it does allow that shame and guilt to grow. Mm-hmm. Every time you have the opportunity to be vulnerable and to open up and to like share something with a friend and like strengthen a bond or whatever, and you choose silence instead, all of that bad stuff, all that shame, all that guilt, all those sort of like, in a way, mostly useless emotions Mm -hmm. um, just get stronger and they get bigger. And eventually what happens is you'll want to be vulnerable with somebody or you'll want to open up. And those things are so strong that you can't, like you can't let yourself say the words. And I'm, I'm terrified of my fear. I don't like to be so afraid of anything that I won't try. Mm -hmm. And I realized that that's what was happening to me. Like that's what, like when I had that realization that I was becoming so afraid of being rejected that I wasn't even trying to be accepted or I wasn't even trying to let people love me. Mm -hmm. I (laughs) just flew in the face of that. And I was like, how do I fix it? How do I fix it? And then it just became, you know, like, looking for ways to be more open, looking for ways to be more vulnerable, thinking about who's earned the right to my vulnerability and how I want to be open with them and just giving it a shot. And every time I did and every time someone accepted me and loved me anyway and, you know, or reciprocated and told me about their own things, Mm -hmm. it like it just it weakened that shame and that guilt. And I realized that, you know, this is a practice. Like, I'm not going to get rid of my shame and guilt by doing this one time or with one person. Mm. Like, it's a practice, and it's something that I'm going to have to learn how to do more and more and more. So I need to figure out what's a good way for me to do that and also what's a useful way for me to do that. Like, I didn't just want to do that and have that be like, oh, yeah, well, I'm better, and that's great, (laughs) you know. I just kept thinking about who I was as a child and who I was as a teen and the fact that I hoped any young person 
could come across my writing and see reflected in it um, the truth about the worst part of themselves, Mm. which is that, like, the worst part of you doesn't define you. And the worst thing you've ever done is not who you are. I mean, like, first of all, goddamn. You said a couple things that stuck out in my mind, particularly um, the first part about when you sharing with somebody else <laughs> and, and being able to, you know, have them share in return. Eric and I are big Brene Brown fans. Oh, I'm a huge Brene Brown. Oh, my fan. God. That makes me so happy. We're both like we love Brene Brown. It's so yes. we're so annoying. But when she talks about shame, not being able to survive empathy, mm-hmm. like, you know, and a lot of time the thing that you fear the very most is the thing that's going to end up saving you. Yeah. But when you talk about it be, being a practice. So much of so much of writing is a practice Mm -hmm. and so much of so much of that practice is getting up and and making sure that you're consistently sharing, whether it's, you know, you're sharing on a page that only you read at that point in time or whatever. I think about like practice and I think about like a way that I started to discover more, you know, women like you who write maybe seven or eight years ago Mm -hmm. was Tumblr. Yeah. And so I I had sort of been on Tumblr. I actually was big on Google Reader. Do you remember that? Yes. Oh my god! I loved Google Reader. Didn't I'm you still love Reader? so sad that Yo. Google Reader that Google Reader is gone. Eric's like Feedly is not the same. It's not. And Eric's always like, you need to use Feedly, and I'm like, well, I started using Feedly, but like the whole point of Google Reader. Remember before where it would like you had the RSS feeds. It was it was a shit because you could share it between your friends or whatever. Yes. Where you could read an article and then like write a note at the top. You know, they could comment at the bottom, and it would start a conversation. Yeah. A lot of friendships were, like, solidified. Yes. I had so many friendships that were solidified and maintained. Mm -hmm. Eric and I, we didn't live in the same place for a really long time. I remember missing that, like, once that, like, disappeared and Mm -hmm. going to Tumblr. But I didn't really understand Tumblr. There was a girl who's – I don't know if you ever read Brit Julius. I haven't. Oh, she's great. She's really, really good. She has a blog called Britishisms. She's, like, an OG, like, black woman Tumblr queen. She's the shit. She's so fucking dope. She writes a lot of this recording in a few other places. I had followed her blog on my Google Reader, like mm-hmm. on the RSS feed, and I saw that sometimes she would have these like longer essays go on the right. website and I see it was hosted by this thing called Tumblr. I'm like, what the fuck is this? I'm going to get one. <laughs> so I got on Tumblr and I didn't really get how to use it at first. And I didn't really understand like sort of like the how dynamic, you know, the medium could be. But it was the first time that I had seen really, in my mind, kind of serious like, writing about black girls and black women. Mm-hmm. And, like, you know, because there were no gatekeepers. Right. And so when you talk about, like, it being a practice of sharing, I think that sometimes the, like, what's happening now with a, a lot of black women writers being able to have platforms is that, like, I think sometimes, like, in the mainstream mindset, it's not necessarily legitimate mm-hmm. because it's like, well, if you don't have some sort of sponsorship of some kind or if you don't have a fellowship or if you're not, you know, working for a big masthead, mm-hmm. you're not in the practice. Or, like, if you're not a novelist, you know, if you don't have that that cash advance, you're not in the practice. Like, what do you think about the correlation between sort of black personal account, especially, like, with, with younger people, especially with younger women, mm-hmm. and technology and how – and, like, you know, different applications and how that sort of has allowed for us to kind of, like – be seen and be yeah. heard and exist. I think in general, anytime black people are coming up, there's going to be a lot of people trying to delegitimize that. Yeah. But they can't really stop it. And they can't. Re- <laughs> they can't. And they can't really, especially in this digital landscape, they can't really keep you from telling your story and from telling the truth. And I, I think specifically places like Tumblr really lend themselves and Twitter. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Tumblr for, I think, when you start talking about blogging and having the ability to connect with the community in many different ways through mm-hmm. photos, through asking questions, just posting quotes, posting links, posting videos, posting whatever, you know, like you go to someone's Tumblr and, you know, in a lot of cases, it's like looking inside their head. <laughs> and I know that, you yeah. know, that's definitely true for my Tumblr. My Tumblr has videos. My Tumblr has links. My Tumblr mm-hmm. has a lot of photos. You know, like I had somebody not too long ago say, you know what I love about your Tumblr? And I'm thinking maybe they're going to talk about like my five things that I do every Sunday or when I like, you know, mm-hmm. have little like random musings. And they're like, I love how many beautiful black women are on your Tumblr. And I don't even know that that's intentional, but I do reblog like 
you know, a lot of pictures of when I see beautiful black women. Mm-hmm. I just am like, yeah, I need that on my blog. I need to be reminded all the time mm-hmm. that, you know, this is real and this is a thing and look how gorgeous we are. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel the same way about like nature and landscapes and stuff. I have a lot of landscapes and interior stuff like all over my Tumblr. <laughs> and it's because, you know, I love those things and they make me happy. I see something and it makes me happy and it's on my blog. Like, And I think sometimes people think that's like a weird oxymoron. Like I've had people say stuff like I love the landscape pictures and the interior pictures and stuff like that I love the food pictures on here but why so many like black women people ask you that yeah I've gotten that in my ask before and it's a strange thing because people do think of it as sort of oxy like an oxymoron that I would have a bunch of black people and a bunch of nature on (laughs) my blog and I'm like black people like nature like it's not you know black People are all kinds of people. Yeah. But people don't necessarily see that all the time. You know, like they when when we can present ourselves online in ways that are true and authentic and where we don't we're not worried about branding and we're not worried about things like that. When we can present ourselves in ways that are just like, no, this is just what I like and this is just what I'm into and what I'm interested in. Mm-hmm. What ends up happening is that there becomes this like, especially online, this amazing visual representation of the spectrum of blackness because mm-hmm. blackness is so many things. And a lot of these mediums, what they're allowing us to do is really subvert that myth that this is a black woman, mm-hmm. this is a black man, this is a black teen. That you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it you can't fit someone in a box when you can look at their blog or you can look at their Instagram or you can look at whatever and yeah. be like, oh shit, they don't fit into the box I tried to put them in. Well, it's even something I think about a lot where I see like. Um... And Eric and I just did, like, our last episode was about the movie Dope. I'm not going to speak on it anymore. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> I've heard a lot of things yeah, about that's, this that's, movie. I said we said a lot of things. Mm-hmm. There's a lot to be said about it. Just in and so good. Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag & Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands, great prices. That's why you rack. Hey, everybody. It's Rob Lowe here. If you haven't heard, I have a podcast that's called Literally with Rob Lowe. And basically, it's conversations I've had that really make you feel like you're pulling up a chair at an intimate dinner between myself and people that I admire, like Aaron Sorkin or Tiffany Haddish, Demi Moore, Chris Pratt, Michael J. Fox. There are new episodes out every Thursday. So subscribe, please, and listen wherever you get your podcasts. Not everything in life is flexible, but at Capella University, your education can be. With our game-changing FlexPath learning format, You're empowered to fit education into your life without putting other priorities on hold. FlexPath lets you set your own deadlines and adjust them when needed. You can take courses at your own speed and move on to the next one when you're ready. Imagine how a flexible education can make a difference in your life at capella.edu. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. I felt like one of the things I kept seeing over and over again in reviews was like, this offers an alternative to what you normally see about black or like to, to like the, the usual thing about like the usual representation of black people. And I hate that because we did say last week on the show that like it offered I said that it offered an alternative to the current, like what you currently see of black kids in the news, because when you see black kids in the news now, it's because they're dead. Right. Or they've been shot. True. But like, I hate the idea of 
a movie like Dope or Dear White People or something like that, certain media representations or certain types of writing or certain styles of dress offering a quote-unquote alternative because I like, I feel like that's like saying that, that's, first of all, it's reducing all black people, like you said, to a monolith. Yes. Right? And it's pretending that it hasn't always been true. Exactly. It's pretending that it hasn't always been true. I'm all about like, I just, the thing that I think the most about when I think about like this type of writing or I think about this type of which practice of sharing mm-hmm. is like expansion and widening. Yeah. You know what I mean? Expansion and widening. And I think that you do a really great job of that. And one of the things that I like the most about, there's a few people also too that also come to mind when I think about um, like personal narrative. Like I mentioned Brit Julius, who I really love. You obviously, Ashley Reese, have you? Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think she's great. She does Accidental Virgin at The Gloss, yes. um, which is such an interesting column. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the things I like the most is that these are all every day. It's like saying, you know, we're enough. Do you know what I mean? Like, yes. well, the things that I go through and the things that I've been through and what I ate for dinner and the things that I talk to my girlfriends about, those things are enough. And oh, this is enough for you to be taking me seriously. Yeah. I love disrupting domesticity. I think it is the coolest thing. If you guys haven't read it yet, Ashley has this amazing column. The day I met you, actually, any person that I met afterward, if you were nearby, like, have you met Ashley? I had just met you. And I was like, have you met Ashley? She writes this column. You have to read it. Um, But I think it's the coolest the, the coolest thing about it is it's all about how you and your boyfriend, Kelly, um, are starting to live together for the first time. And all of every single column is like, has like it f- usually focuses i think on like one theme mm-hmm. you know what you had the one about the key yeah you know you had the one about feeling like you were getting boring yeah you had the one about taking care of each other mm-hmm. and you know being nice or being good enough for the other person but they all have like this really great simplicity where you find like all of this exciting shit in in what I think a lot of times it's perceived to be kind of humdrum. Mm-hmm. And like that's, I think that's something that colors a lot of your writing. Yes. A reason that I think could keep a lot of black people from sharing their stories is that they think that their experiences don't matter because they've happened to them and, and they feel ordinary and they seem ordinary. Mm-hmm. How do you, um, I guess, prepare yourself to sort of examine things like that and like, in such a public way? Well, the column... First of all, when I decided that that was something I wanted to do, it was something I talked about to Kelly about. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like, I was very much like, how how would you feel about this? But, yeah, my boyfriend um, is ridiculously uh, supportive of me. And for him, mm-hmm. it's like, that's art. If you are using, you know, like, talking about our relationship and stuff like that to create art, mm-hmm. then I'm always for it. Like, because that's just how, you know, he sees art, like... You know, he's also an artist. He's a poet. And for him, it's like, no, you use every part of yourself and every part of your life to create art. Mm -hmm. And since I am part of your life, it makes sense that you would be using, you know, like your experiences here to create art. So I thought about that a lot and about what kind of art I love, which is art that sort of takes subtle things or everyday things and sort of magnifies them for us and shows us. Um, how those things are both universal and very individual. Mm-hmm. You know, because living with someone is something that a lot of people do. But my experience living with someone is always going to be my experience mm. with living with someone. So, you know, I, I try to take heart in the fact that, you know, people say, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. Mm-hmm. But... No one is having my experience under the sun. Mm -hmm. There are too many variables. Like, I'm in that way a bit unique. So when I'm writing these things, you know, it's I think it's because Kelly and I are super communicative. Mm -hmm. We talk about things all the time. And one of the things that we decided when we started dating was that... You know, the only way this is going to work is if we were really honest with each other and if we said the things that were on our minds and if we allowed each other space to discuss what was happening in our relationship. But writing the column has been this really amazing experience because now 
I think what happens is that things happen in our relationship or things are said and my mind just blooms. Like my mind just goes, oh, that's a seed. That's a word right there. Like I need to really think about that and I need to trace that. I need to figure out where that comes from and what it means to me. You know, because the column, I don't want it to focus too much on like, this is what me and Kelly did. I want it to be like, this is what I'm discovering about myself in this process of living with another person. And I don't always like it, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but it's real. And if I write it and that makes someone else go, oh, my God, I thought I was crazy. I thought I was failing. I thought I was the only person this had ever happened to. And I'm so glad to figure out that I'm not. Then that feels good and worth it. And it feels nice. Um, This like this column has been of all the things I've written. Mm -hmm. This column puts the most emails in my inbox. This column is the most people reacting to me in person. Why do you why do you think that is? I don't think people – I think people – I do think that there is a level of privacy that's needed in relationships, right? Uh I do think that there's like a level of that's just between us. But I also think a lot of that stuff is fueled by shame. It's like the only reason this is just between us is because we we want to project a certain image of our relationship to other people – Mm-hmm. and we're ashamed of what it would look like if people knew this thing about us or if they knew this thing about me or, you know, whatever. Yeah. And because Kelly and I have always been so against the idea of living with shame or living with, you know, like immense amounts of guilt that are unwarranted. Yeah. It made, I think it made sense for us to share certain aspects of our relationship that are difficult so that, Almost so that other people can see that, like, no, like, being in love is hard. Living together is hard because you do have to make a lot of adjustments. Pretending that you're not making those adjustments is not helping you. Pretending that this isn't happening isn't helping you. And it's also not helping other people, like, in relationships. Like, I I don't know if it's that we think... You know, we're burdening other people when we talk about difficulties in our relationships Mm -hmm. or we talk about what we're learning about ourselves. I don't know if we feel like the minute we say we're not perfect, people no longer respect our relationship or they start betting against us. Mm -hmm. But it's also like that's not really I don't know. Like, I feel like that's not really my business if somebody's betting against my relationship. Mm. It's not my business if someone thinks we're not going to make it. It's not. My Like, all of that stuff doesn't have anything to do with what's happening between me and him. Yeah. And I want to be able to share how I am growing in our relationship and how, you know, in some ways how he is growing in our relationship because I want people to have an example of, like, <laughs> growth is a good thing. Mm-hmm. Relationships are not supposed to be perfect. Yeah. You know, you're not supposed to go in and things are supposed to be automatically easy and you guys are, you know, equally as good at everything. You know, Kel and I have a very egalitarian, you know, like relationship. Mm -hmm. He, you know, he cooks, I cook. He cleans, I clean. You know, he makes money, I make money. You know, like we we really do move through things as like a unit. We really are partners. We really do help each other. But Kelly gets on my nerves and I get on his nerves, you know, and we have fights and we, you know, have misunderstandings and frustrations and things like that. The only difference is that I've seen in this relationship than any other relationship I've been in is that when we have fights and when we have frustrations and when we're upset, we go to each other and say, I'm mad. I'm frustrated. This upset me. And then the other person tries, you know, doesn't always succeed. Mm -hmm. But the other person tries not to go, well, I'm mad or I'm upset or I'm, you know, the other person tries to go, okay, tell me why. And then we go through that process of being open with each other. It's interesting because, like, you talk so much about shame and you talk about all these other things. And it seems like you had to come to a certain point as a person. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Before you were able to 
like really share at a prolific level with like like in, in a public way because you went from like you know you've been on Tumblr and you've been writing uh-huh. and you know and then to go from that to like someplace like BuzzFeed where mm-hmm. everything you do is amplified amplify you know you have to you have to prepare a lot as a person to be able to share at that level we've talked about how there are there's more black women now more black people now sharing at that level than there ever have been yes and even when you think about something as informal as like the Twitter chats, uh, the like you know the the Bassy Twitter chats about or about mental, like mental health and mental illness that just that happened. I want to say at the beginning of the month, the beginning of July. Yeah, it was. Um, it's always the first Monday in yeah, July. I know, I missed it, and I, I mm-hmm. saw the last column that you wrote about mental illness and things like that. There are more. There's more visibility than there ever has been, and mm-hmm. there are more people talking about these things that there ever have been. You know, the fact that Bassy was able to have this, you know, this seed of an idea about starting conversations with black folks about mental health and mm-hmm. mental illness and that being something that you know had a large reach a large enough audience that that inspired the last column that you wrote mm-hmm. about living with a partner and struggling with mental illness and I think about even all the steps that I had to get to to get to the point where we're doing this show mm-hmm. like where Eric want you know I, I had so many things that I was dealing with in my life oh my god I feel like that sounds like a like a Mariah Carrier when he used no, to interview no. but yeah I've had a lot of shit that I've dealt with in my life to be able to get to the point where like the reason why we have the show in the first place is because writing felt too permanent to me mm-hmm. like oh I want to write but I'd be like mm. yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah exactly <laughs> never mind but like somehow for some reason sitting and talking feels like more it feels like it, it feels like it's something that's a little bit easier for me and as we've been able to record i've sort of been able to get back into writing and as a, you know we talked in the show before about like how eric and i are both in therapy and you know mm-hmm. it, i realized through the process of creating this that and just from listening to you today that i'm not alone in this that so much of being able to produce the work that you want to or that you maybe meant to is about working on yourself as a person so much yes. about even just being able to share and connect with other people if you take creativity out of it, if you mm-hmm. take the practice of creation and sharing that out of it. So much of being able to connect with other people as a person is a, is a process of, like, you getting to a point that you need to be at to be able to be able to do that. Absolutely. You know, we still have a dearth, I would say. Like, I'd still say there's a giant space open where we need more regular black folks mm-hmm. who are talking about themselves and who are sharing of themselves. I think that Part of that is needing to do, like, work on yourself to be able to get comfortable. Mm-hmm. Why do you think, aside from the obvious, <laughs> aside from the obvious, the elephant that's always in the room, why do you think we still have such a dearth? And what do you think are some of the things that keep people in this position where we're sharing like that or sharing, you know, sharing personally is still is still mm-hmm. tough? And where people sort of feel like, eh, like I told you, like I would write, but I'm kind of like, nobody wants to hear what I yeah. would say. I think black people, especially black women, are have been having their voices um, for many years labeled as illegitimate or irrelevant mm-hmm. or unnecessary. Yeah, And I don't think that's something that you can talk yourself out of once. I don't think it's something that you write one thing and you think, oh, well, now I'm legitimate or now I can do this or now I'm OK. I think it's it's a practice and it's also a burden in a certain way. What do you mean when you say burden? I would say it's a burden in that it is a responsibility of yours that is um, built from oppression. It is not something you should have to do. It should not be your responsibility to convince yourself <laughs> so hard that your voice is worthy and your thoughts are worthy and your writing is worthy. But the world, especially if you live in America, um, is working against you what and you, is working against your creativity. What do you do to keep yourself in a position where – because like you say, it's not just something that you can get up once and be like, all right. Today I've decided yeah. my voice matters yeah. and I'm going to do this. What do you do? What do you do to keep yourself in the, to get back in that space when you've gotten away from it? And what do you do to keep yourself there? First of all, I'm surrounded by wonderful brown women mm-hmm. and their voices and their encouragement and their empowerment. Um, Hannah, Georgis, 
mm-hmm. um, Durga, Chubos, Heaven, um, Nagatu, Tracy Clayton, uh, Arabelle, mm-hmm. Cardi. Yeah. Like, you know, like all of these women who, when I'm feeling, when I, when I succumb and I just let myself sort of be enveloped by the doubt that the world wants to shroud me in mm-hmm. as a black, queer woman in America. Mm-hmm. I have people who reach in and tear a hole in that shroud for me and remember the light. Remember that there's light on the other side of this yeah. and that you are as worthy of that light as anybody else. But it's hard to remember. <laughs> um, I also have a partner who is very encouraging. Yeah. You know, Kelly takes me for all of me. He takes me as someone who's, you know, not necessarily attracted to people based on gender. Mm-hmm. He takes me as someone who has mental illness. He takes me as someone who you know, becomes a bit of a workaholic, you know. He takes me as someone who doesn't leave the apartment as much as they should. You know, like, he he takes all of that, and he takes all of the great parts of me, and, you know, he encourages me every day to just keep doing what I know I want to do. That's the thing, is that he's never... Like, you know, do this because you should. Mm-hmm. Do this because whatever. He says do this because you know that's what you want to do. Yeah. And I know that, you know. And then it's like, well, you know, he's right. So it's like a combination of, like, love and accountability. Love and accountability, really. I mean, and then there's, you know, it's very important to have that thing inside of you, too. Because you cannot always count on other people to sustain you. You have to have something inside you someplace that like nothing else can reach and no one else can reach and it's just like this little thing that's just for you and you pull like it's like a lever it's like you pull that thing out in case of emergency (laughs) and what and I think what that thing is at least for me is a photo of myself at 11 years old Mm. you know like that's what it is for me Ashley at 11 who reads everything she can get her hands on, Mm -hmm. who is really just looking for any story like hers, any story that resonates with her instead of having to read, you know, like, I mean, not that I, I loved reading, but I was always just like taking like little things from everybody else's story and, you know, and, and trying to like form, you know, like a story that was my own or, form a story that resonated with me as, you know, a young, sensitive, black little girl dealing with being, you know, like attracted to girls, you know, as well as boys and being, you know, dealing with having an incarcerated parent and Mm -hmm. another parent who clearly loved me, but also wasn't great at showing it in the way that I needed. Um a grandmother who I loved but who was also highly critical. You know, like, there were just all these things at once, and I I just wanted something. I wanted to read a book and go, oh, my God, that's my life. And I never found anything. And so I keep telling myself, you write because everybody, I believe, deserves to pick up a book and go, oh, my God. Like, even if it's not, like, exact, but to just be like, oh, this is so simple. You know, like, this is... Oh, my God. You know, everybody deserves a chance to have that. And the reason so many girls like me, so many young black girls didn't have that is because someone told, you know, someone older and black, you know, or whatever, that their story didn't matter. Mm. So I keep that, you know, and. When it, things are especially rough, I whip that out. And, you know, for a little while, I pretend that this is not my choice. It's my duty. Duty. That's something that Eric and I talk a lot about is the res- responsibility mm-hmm. and how that shapes a lot of the choices, you know, that go into making something and um, especially something with colored in the time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and just something, you know, that reflects that reflects you know, our values and things like that. Why do you think that this is a time that all of this is kind of happening? Like, you know, you were able to fire off 
you know, a bunch of black and brown girls' names just now. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? And I know that there are many, many more. Why do you think that this is happening right now? I think the internet has been a big part of it. Mm-hmm. I think now um, when you have a thought or a feeling that feels you feel very much alone in, you can write about it and see almost instantly that there are other people in other parts of the world or maybe even just across town who are like, girl, yes. <laughs> like community building. Community building. I have a, I have a few different Tumblr accounts. Oh, okay. <laughs> I have a few different it's Tumblr accounts. Tumblr. But, yeah, because it's, it's a few Everybody's people. Everybody's got I was going to say, it's a few people out here with secret Tumblrs. Mm-hmm. But part of that was finding community on like via technology finding community I have a huge community on you know my secret tumblers mm-hmm. but finding community on tumblr where other people you know could be like a 19 year old girl in Saskatchewan 19 mm-hmm. year old black girl in Saskatchewan which you know you'd never think would be able to find you you know makeup artists in LA different people you know find you and connect with you that way sort of realizing that like you know I had to get to the first point where I was like, okay, I have something to say. <laughs> right. Right. And I'm like, okay, I should probably put it out. I should tell somebody. Okay, right. I should probably put it, like, on the internet. And then, like, okay, somebody else found it. So they kind of understand it. I sort of, like, built my confidence up there in this, like, sort of anonymous way. And then started migrating that over into, like, my actual Twitter account and mm-hmm. things like that. And then started to, like, develop a voice. Um and, like, we talked about finding community, realizing, like, on Twitter, like, I was able to find some community. Yes. And being able to have, you know, and then through this show, obviously, that's much larger than my Twitter presence. <laughs> but, yeah, being able to find community through the show. I think a lot of times you talk about, like, safety. I had to go almost, like, play for the farm team before I was able to realize that, like, I there were a series of small risks that I could take. Yes. And still be able to maintain the daily life that I need. Yes. And, like, not everybody has that luxury. No. Let's be honest. Not everybody has that luxury. But I think that there are more of us than, like, there are more people like me than maybe we realize. And it took, like, years of playing really, really small and sort of, like, um, and, like, developing a voice and figuring out a way to express myself um, in a way that other people could understand in a way that was going to be effective before I could share, like, on a larger level. It's just a learning process. Yeah. It's hard. Um, There is no playbook for learning how to be subversive. (laughs) You know, like, there isn't. Like, there, you just, you know, how to be subversive and still, you know, like, be able to take care of yourself is, is hard. People are constantly playing with that balancing act. People are constantly trying to figure out what does it look like yeah. to be someone who works in my field or works in this way, you know, or whatever, yeah. and also someone who feels like they can speak out about this thing in a way that is effective, mm-hmm. you know, without destroying, you know, my career. Or my yeah. Life. Like it's, yeah. it's Sometimes that's hard and sometimes, you know, like working for myself, I can pretty much say whatever I want, but I am so aware that working for myself is both a luxury and a sacrifice. Yeah. You know, like I'm so aware of the fact that, you know, I don't always know when money is coming in anymore. And I also get to leave my house and, you know, take a walk in the park when I'm, you know, stuck. Yeah. You know, it's it's very interesting. (laughs) It's also just very uh, out there. And it's, not everybody is going to have that same opportunity. It's not my job to police them. Mm-hmm. It's not my job to assume I know what someone else's situation is. Yeah. I try not to do that. Yeah. Because I think that's both unfair and ineffective. Yeah. Um, but I do think that there are some people who, if they don't have the answer right away how to make it work, then they give up. And they go, well, I, I don't know how. Mm-hmm. And I, I can't do it. What would you say to encourage somebody who is kind of like in that space where maybe they could mm-hmm. take small risks and maybe could inch towards something, mm-hmm. but they're afraid? I would say take a first step. Play first with step? the first inch. Whatever. I mean, I feel like that's just going to look different for every person. Mm-hmm. But probably the first step, I mean, the first step that I always tell people to go with is to start reading. Start reading. Why reading? Because... No matter what you do, no matter what you can say, 
if you don't actually know anything, <laughs> you're not being helpful. Like if you like like it's cool to like read blogs and think pieces and stuff like that. But when those blogs and think pieces are citing certain writers and certain philosophers and stuff like that, mm-hmm. you know, you don't know James Baldwin because you read an essay where Ta-Nehisi Coates talked about James Baldwin. Yeah. You only know James Baldwin if you've read some James Baldwin. You know, if you've done some looking at James Baldwin and who yeah. he is and, you know, all of those things. Like, I think doing your research, doing your due diligence in that way mm-hmm. is the quietest way to take your first step. And is it will really inform how you take the second step and how effective that second step is. Because what you really want to do is make every when you have to like be careful when you have to tiptoe yeah when you have to you know do those things. The best thing you can do is make each move count for the most, like chess. Yeah, you know, just make each move count as much as possible. You know, like, and you can do that when you have the information, when you have the knowledge. Your strategy game is tight. Yeah. And you can, like, I, I don't want to say live in two worlds because no one lives in two worlds. Um, we all live in one. But what you can do is f- find ways to go, you know, I remember in high school my chemistry teacher used to tell us, always read your student handbook front to back. Yeah. Always read it front to back because you're not reading it to figure out what you can't do. You're reading it to figure out what it doesn't say you can't do. Yo, And I think that's the important part of having that knowledge and having that, you know, like dearth of information. Um, So you can like chart, like you can figure out a a large way to chart. A large way to chart that, that like, you know, mine has been very sloppy to be perfect. (laughs) Like it has been because I, you know, came into things, you know, having left a, a woman studies feminism in black and white class thinking I knew everything. You know what I mean? And it took a lot of reading. It took a lot of things for me to, you know, like stumble my way into being a more informed um, person today and hopefully being effective. But I think there's a better way to do it for people who are, who have the ability to be a little bit more strategic Mm -hmm. and are interested in being more strategic for whatever reason. That's beautiful. Actually, you gave me a lot to think about. <laughs> well, I mean, no, I mean, but seriously, this is like I told you, this is uh, the reason why the show exists is because I was too afraid to write. Yeah. Yeah. And I never, and for some reason, for some reason, this is less <laughs> terrifying. For some reason, I'm like, yeah, this is fine. It's totally fine that every single, you know, every single biweekly period, every single fortnight. Yeah. I'm fortnight. just like, yeah, exactly. I yeah. love that one. Let I mean, that's. I'm t- I got tired of saying bi-weekly or every other week. Yes. Uh, but every fortnight, I just sit in here and I'm just like, oh, you know, take down the white supremacist, cis-hetero patriarchy. <laughs> like every other week I'm yeah. doing this. But like writing about myself, I'm like, oh, no, I'd rather. No, no, no. no I'd rather not. I don't think what I have to say is important. <laughs> but, um, but it is. And actually, you were like you reminded me today. How vital that is. It is. Because when I think about, like, doing this and when I think about, you know, I sometimes every once in a while I'll go back and find my baby live journal Mm -hmm. and I'll read it. And it's weird because so much of it is so much my voice Mm -hmm. where I'm just like, oh, my God, I have been expressing myself in the exact same way on a regular basis since I've been 13, 14 years old. You know what I mean? That's half my life now. Yeah. (laughs) And I'm just kind of like I'm still doing the same thing. And I'm like, all right, this kid was obviously she was stressed. Stressed out. She was stressed. She was stressed. a stressed girl. But you know, I want to. I want to be able to, to provide to provide her something, because mm-hmm. I I meet little babies just like me all the time. Mm-hmm. Like even when I went out to, um, I spoke on a panel recently in San Francisco. Oh my god, I didn't even talk about that. By the way, thank you guys so much for having me. The San Francisco Museum of the African Diaspora. That was super fun. Um, but there were little, there were babies. I mean, they wouldn't call themselves babies, but right. to me, there were babies that came up to me after, and they're like. We went to Stanford. We like your show. We're like, we go to school together. We like your show. And I was just like, that's crazy, you know? 
it's like it's crazy on one level because I'm like, you know, you're sitting in the hot ass room we're in right now recording. Right. You know what I'm saying? It yeah. feels really private. The same way I'm assuming that writing feels really private. It does. And so then to like put it out there and then have people respond to the thoughts that you have is kind of just like yeah. it's like a very like what is that, Bill and Ted? Like, whoa. It is. It is. And I, I think the good thing about it is that I've always had a really good grasp on when people um comment on my work who is commenting on my work as someone who, you know, genuinely wants to talk about it or genuinely cares or mm-hmm. whatever, and who is just rabble-rousing. Yeah. Like, who's just trying to start shit? And if you're trying to start shit, like, it's really easy for me to dismiss you. Um, it's much, much harder to dismiss people who actually care and actually have thoughts and ideas and stuff mm-hmm. like that, and I don't want to. You know, I write to connect. That's why I write. Mm -hmm. I am not a person who creates for the sake of creation. I know that there are artists out there like that, and that might seem like a more pure, you know, like reason to create art. I, it doesn't motivate me Mm. to just create. I create because I want someone to connect to it. I want someone to have a reaction to it. And I, I, you know, and I don't look for necessarily like negative or positive reactions. Mm -hmm. I look for someone to read what I write and say, oh, oh, I get that. I understand that, you know? Mm-hmm. And <laughs> I think it just, you know, it's, I don't know. I guess I just, I think, especially for people like you and I, um, who seem to be really good at connecting with other people through whatever medium um, I'll take that as a compliment. It is a compliment. I'm going to write that down tonight. It is a compliment. In my iPhone I mean notebook. That. Thank you. You know, <laughs> I I think you just, not necessarily a duty, but my God, what a privilege. Yeah. What a gift. Yeah. You know, so, I don't know. Well, thank you so much for coming in. This was really, really wonderful. I feel like there's a million other things that I wanted to ask you. I'm just like... A million other things that I wanted to say, but I'm just like, nobody wants to, you know, I can't, <laughs> I can't keep everybody here captive. <laughs> but thank you so much for coming. I I really appreciate it. Eric appreciates it. Eve, little Eve Tyler, his new daughter who came. Eric told me to tell everybody he's chilling. He said, he texted me. He said, you're clear to say I'm home chilling with the fam. In case y'all are wondering. <laughs> Eric is home chilling with Eric the fam. Eric is home chilling with the fam. I actually got to meet Eve last night. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my God. You talk about, is like. She's so, like, okay, I'm sorry. Like, I really, really love children. She's the tiniest. Well, she's so small. But her, I mean, I'm going to say this. Eric said it. It's true. She's got the biggest feet. Yeah. I'm like, you need to put her in the water. She got paddles. Like, she she, I think paddles. she could swim. Like, for real. I think if you put her in the water right now, she could swim. But she's so small. She's so sweet. I was the most troublesome baby. Yeah. And she just like, she's just sleep, 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 sleeps. She's so sweet. Um, and she's like, she's unbelievable. I went over and I hung out with her yesterday. And like, don't tell Eric I said this, you guys, while he's out. But um, Eve is not only better looking and more talented than Eric is. <laughs> she's also smarter and much, much funnier. Well, better sense of humor. She smiles in her sleep. It's the cutest thing I've well, ever seen. She's a in my woman. <laughs> That's good. That's yeah. good. I mean, it's uh, it's factual, but she's uh, mm-hmm. she's great. Uh, so yeah, Eric is doing good. Baby's good. Carla's great. Um, shout out Eric and Carla. Yeah, shout out Eric and Carla. Keeping it real for the nine nine and the two thousand. Good job having a baby. Good job having a baby. She's so cool. She's the coolest. I like. I was good job having a cool baby. Yeah, she's so cool. Um, she has a gray. She's gray bedroom wall. Oh my god. It's so cute. Okay, that's perfect. It's all white furniture and gray bedroom walls. Okay, that's perfect. I know. I don't know who, like, I've never met Eric and Carla, but. They're the coolest people. But listen, uh, you're doing the damn thing. Yeah. You're doing right by your child. Yeah. And I appreciate you for it. Me too. I do too. Especially Carla. Eric, <laughs> I'm going to give you credit for hanging in there. But, um,. <laughs> Yeah, this is this has been for colored nerds. Um, you know, if you're listening, you should rate, review, subscribe. Like I always say, tell your friends, tell your family, don't tell your coworkers, don't tell your boss. No. They're probably not going to understand it unless you they work won't. like 
for yourself so you can talk to your coworkers about us. Oh, Ashley. yeah. Because um, I'm my own co You are your co-worker. own coworker. Exactly. That's yeah. the spirit. <laughs> <laughs> um, but thank you so much for listening. And uh, we will talk to you guys in a couple of weeks. And I'll have a new guest. Yeah. But Ashley, thank you so much. You're welcome to come back anytime. I would love that. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, this my has God. Been a blast. This has been a pleasure. Seriously. Bye. Bye. Justin and so good. Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag and Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands, great prices. That's why you rack.